Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Rabbi Eliezer Rubin is currently the head of school at the Joseph Kushner Hebrew Academy slash Ray Kushner Yeshiva High School. He began his career in Israel where he studied at Yeshivat Merkaz Harav before receiving his smicha from the chief rabbinate of Israel. In addition to teaching many young men and women at Israeli yeshivot and seminaries for their gap year, he served as an officer in Sahal in the Israeli army and as chaplain of their renowned 13th Brigade, which is called Golani. Prior to leading JKAJ slash RKYHS, Rabbi Rubin enjoyed an 18-year-long career at the Ramaz School, where he served as headmaster of both the lower and middle schools, as well as dean of the upper school, a distinction that is exceedingly rare in Jewish or secular education. At Congregation Kehilat Yeshurun, his Shabbat Shiarim and other lectures routinely attracted scores of enthusiastic teens and adults from all parts of Manhattan. Hello, welcome to the Jewish Education Experience podcast. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me. Looking forward to the conversation. Will you please tell us a bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in Jewish education? I was born in the Bronx, uh, lived in the United States for my teen years, uh, made Aliyah at a young age. Uh, studied in America's Harav uh, in Yerushalayim. It's uh, it's, uh, not accurately known as America's Harav Cook and um, had the privilege of serving in Sahal and then graduating from a course, a chaplain's course. So I was a a rabbi in Sahal at the later stages of my service. Um, Came back to the United States, uh, finished my academic degrees, um, have a master's degree from NYU uh, in from School of Leadership and Education, Steinhardt, and a master's from Turo College uh, in um, Judaic Studies. Uh, my, my ordination is from the Chief Rabbinate of Israel. I worked uh, 18 years in the Ramaz School, um, having the privilege of assuming different leadership roles and been now for the last 15 years a very proud head of school at the Kushner Academy of Livingston, New Jersey. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so how long have you been back in, in the States now? Oh, many years. It's, well, well, depending who you ask, but I would say, unfortunately, it, uh, I'm back now uh, 33 years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see yourself ever going back? Yes, very much okay. so. We okay. have uh, two, two married daughters in Israel and seven grandchildren there. So, wow. And as an Israeli citizen, I am... Uh, been enjoying the uh, ease at which I could fly in the United States while the airports in Israel are closed to tourists. For yeah, sure. yeah. Sure. So where, where's, where's your dream uh, dream home in Israel? I'm not up to that yet. Still, still <laughs> formulating the, the consideration. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Really, uh, really interesting story. Um, are there any educators that have inspired you or who you particularly admire? Uh, the educator who inspired me most uh, was the chief rabbi of Israel, who was the head of the America's Arab Yeshiva when I attended. Uh, he had the unique ability to combine uh, world, world-class scholarship, uh, Jewish Torah knowledge, uh, with a vibrant, uh, engaging personality who 
took the time to understand everybody with whom we met and spoke to them at a level which was always engaging, uh, but it was never beyond their scope and reach and understanding. Um, and um, I, I hope that I can model after uh, his type of leadership. And uh, I also look to my father, who was a very well-known rabbi in the Bronx, in the Israel Palm Parkway for 50 years. Uh, and my grandfather, who was an American Jewish historic individual who was responsible for um, saving thousands of Jews through Vat HaTzalah during World War II, and then ultimately establishing the Lakewood Yeshiva um, alongside of Iron Color. Wow. So you uh, come from a, you have such a mm-hmm. legacy that you're uh, following the shoes that you're filling. That's really amazing. Now, you're, it's an assumption that I'm actually sh- uh, filling those shoes. Uh, the Gemara says that a person should always ask, when will my actions ever reach those of my fathers and forefathers? I really live through that on a daily basis because I think uh, no matter what, I'll be able to think I'm accomplishing in life. Uh, looking back at the lives of my father and my grandfather, I don't think I'll even get close to what they've been able to contribute uh, to the Jewish community. Uh, yeah, v- very nice about your father. And and uh, the first um, you you were referring to um, Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook, or were you referring to the Rosh Hashiva when you were there? Uh, no, Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook died in 1935. Uh, when I was in America, the Rabbi, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook was the Rosh Hashiva. He passed away while I was in the Yeshiva. Uh, and the next in line was Rav Avram Shapira who then became the head of America's Arab, and then while the head of America's Arab, he became the chief rabbi of Israel. And okay. because I was in America's Arab and had a chance to get to know Rav Abram very closely, and he was looking for someone who spoke English uh, to help him with the diaspora community, and since there were only around six American boys in a yeshiva of 400, and somehow I was the one, I guess, who spoke English the best, I was able to really stay by his side for many years and help him in his operations as chief rabbi. Okay, and, that, and you said Rabbi Tzvi... Cook, that's the, to the cook. He died in 1981, I think it was. And that's the son, right, of Rav Cook. That's the son, right. So the cook, the, the Rav school is no longer headed um, by anyone from the Cook dynasty. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I guess I remember. Unfortunately, there was that the tragic event at the Merkaza Rav. Obviously, that was after your yeah. time. Right. That was after my time. That was very tragic indeed. And do you know? Is it the yeshiva now? Is it? Is it still um, business as usual? Oh, yeah. You know, like, uh, it's hard for me to speak about how other people cope with tragedies. Uh, But from the outside, what I've always seen is that uh, Israeli society has um, a a very unique and very comforting way of trying to figure out to live side by side with tragedies without having it uh, interfere with moving forward. Uh, I heard an interesting idea expressed by Moshe Lichtenstein not long ago. He said that the Avot, uh, Avram, for all of his trials and all of his challenges, mostly overcame his challenges and lived a life of great success. Uh, Yitzchak, although more quiet and reserved, also lived a life of success and died uh, with, a, with peace. He said what Yaakov teaches us is the first of the Avot that lived with uh, uh, challenges, travesties, disappointments, um, with lived with all sorts of uh, chicanery and trickery and uh, lived side by side with it. Most of it was never resolved. Asa was never resolved. Lovin was never resolved. Losing his son for those years was never resolved. And Yaakov taught us uh, a different way of, of, of operating our lives 
in which that sometimes you could actually resolve a conflict, you can find a middle ground, you can attempt to mitigate it, but there are sometimes you just have to learn how to live with it. And Yaakov taught us how to live with difficulties. I think it's a very valuable lesson, especially today, when we're living through a time of life that's so vexing and complicated and confusing, and that we're all helpless in trying to solve world problems, but we all at the same time have to live side by side with them. Wow, very nice. Um, yeah, you know, the, the mission statement of uh, us at the podcast here is un- uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. So you're, uh, you've given us a lot of gems right, right, right from the start here. So uh, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, how do you talk about God and how might this differ with the various age groups you teach? Really, uh, it is complicated. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I saw the, the, the issues of you know, God comes up not just in talking about God, but talking around the issues of God. So, for instance, when we want to talk to students about prayer, uh, you can approach prayer by discussing just the need to pray. Or you can talk about it in the terms of, uh, of a person expressing the deepest thoughts. They can also, and probably should also discuss it within the context that there is a creator and we're created, uh, and that prayer is a sense of expression of humility, uh, and it brings us to a place of need, which was very much articulated often by Rabbi Lichtenstein and, and, and Rabbi Soloveitchik, is that turning to God is a way of demonstrating uh, the, the vastness of and the, um, the unlimited nature of God at the same time talking about the finite human being. Um, so I think that the first approach that's discussing God is first discussing prayer, and that if a student recognizes that the world was not co- created by coincidence and with all of its intricacies and its all its brilliance, that there is a, a master design, once we've established that there is a God and a creator, then it comes a little easier to discuss, okay, now that we know there's God, if you believe in that, then we have to discuss, okay, what is the relationship? What is the providential relationship we have with God? Um, and, uh, you know, for some students, God may be part of the understanding and assumption of creation, but not necessarily involved in, a, uh, in, in, in an interventionist way of our lifetime. But when you get to that level that God is you know, kind of like uh, distant but uh, created, then you can look at always at Jewish history and understand that the way that Jewish history has evolved over the years survives and thrives and continues to um, distinguish itself through greatness. It get it have to be um, it's it's an easier entree into recognizing the veracity and the eternity the eternal the eternal nature of Judaism and Torah. Um, so I think that would be one way to discuss it. Um, similar to that is a verse interpreted by Ruth uh, in the book of Ruth. It's uh, when she's talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, um, uh, And uh, it's pointed out that when she said, your people are my people and your God is my God, that Ruth didn't start her, uh, her journey of belief in Judaism with God. She started her journey of belief with looking at the Jewish people. And once she was able to look at the Jewish people with the depth and its sophistication and its complication, she was able to embrace Judaism and then ultimately God. And that was why the order was Amecha Mi Elokayach Elokay. That'd be two ways that I think that I would discuss it. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I knew when he mentioned Rough Cook, it was going to be deep, but uh, it's pretty deep, uh, deep stuff. Yeah, wow. Um, I'm just curious because you mentioned prayer before, and sometimes we found that in school settings, it's hard for the kids, I guess, to connect and, and really dive in with Kavana. And how do you help inspire them as the head of school where you are? How, how do you... Um, create that environment where they learn to dive in with Kavana and understand what they're praying for and, and who and everything. So, you know, it's very, it's a very uh, common question with very uncommon answers. Um, you know, uh, the interesting thing about all of our performance of mitzvot is that they need to be routinized. Mitzvot are not done as a buffet table and they come with obligations. In fact, the Gemara says, that the highest level of practicing mitzvot are when someone is commanded to do so, which sounds almost counterintuitive. Mitzvot are not created to be voluntarily embraced. And once you enter into the world of routine, it has a, a certain come to the risk of creating a doldrum or a um, less meaning because it is less novel. Uh, but on the other hand, if prayer is just looked at in the time of when there is a, a kind of a rush of need of inspiration, then we would find ourselves praying less and less and probably even having less, even less engagement, kind of like a muscle that isn't used, it atrophies. So the first aspect of engaging prayer is a counterintuitive argument to students is that even when you're not in the mood, uh, even if it's 10 o'clock at night and you come home and even Dab Meyer, and you can't get to a shul, or you don't want to get to a shul because it's raining and it's cold, you're still better off davening without kavana than even davening, than not davening at all. Um, once that that is set up, that the expectation is not that's a quid pro quo, that you have to daven only when there's kavana, then there's uh, different schools of thought as to look at exactly how does prayer work uh, and what is prayer. I mean, you can get to someone like um, uh, uh, Professor Yishai Leibowitz, who said that prayer should never be seen as utility. Uh, there's no utilitarian relationship that man has or woman has with God as vis-a-vis -vis prayer. Um, you look at, let's say, uh, Rav Cook writes and Rav, Rav Lichtenstein of Salvechik would tell you that prayer has a very strong utility in the sense of spiritual, spiritual cleansing or spiritual connection uh, with the Boreolum, also adding, as I said earlier, a real sense of humility. If you go and transverse all over the Hasidic community, you would look at prayer for a mystical place, that the words themselves, embedded in the words, imbued in the words of all sorts of mystical meanings that uh, conjure up different type of, kind of spiritual connections. Um, I, I think that the, um, recently I read an interesting article about the Balakanya uh, and Lubavitcher Rebbe in particular, <clears throat> so that the, the reason why Lubavitch are so intent on bringing people to do one mitzvah, uh, one isolated mitzvah that has no future utility, it's just in the moment. Catch someone, give them a little of an extra, give them a little, give them a, have someone give it to fill have someone light, light Hanukkah candles in an airport. They're not trying to get people to light mitzvot, to do mitzvot, because they believe that ultimately it will lead to a greater sense of commitment. That may be the case, but it's not the motivation. 
The motivation is that every time a person does a mitzvah, it brings a certain sense of goodness into the world through this spiritual conduit. And that same uh, concept could be applied to prayer, is that there is a spiritual conduit that's open in the world when prayer is engaged on any level. And the more kavana, the more spiritual openness there is in this vow. I mean, it's a tougher conversation, but in a, in a very short podcast, that would be my short answer. It sounds like that ties in with overall education in, in general, right? That um, we have a certain amount of um, influence that we have. And if we can encourage or create that spark for our students, where even if they start just doing one thing, hopefully that will lead to, to, to more things. And that ties in with this next question about education or which can be a bit of an amorphous term. Um, how would you define it? You know, there's an interesting comment that Rav Cook writes on Rashi and Chayesara. Um, the Rashi and Chayesara says that Sarah lived 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. And Rashi has comments, no one talks that way. She should just live the 127. Why did each one get its own different, distinct, distinct category of the word year attached to it? So Rashi has his answer. Rav Cook says something which may be helpful in understanding your question. Rav Cook said that at every stage of life that Sarah lived, that stage became part of her persona and stayed with her and then informed the next stage of her life, but never got uh, eclipsed. So the, the, the wonder and the simplicity and the uh, um, pureness of a seven-year-old was still part of her 20-year-old persona when she was now energized and engaged and she was enthusiastic and she was motivated. And that same type of seven and 20 personas also existed when she was the older and looking back at her life, but she never lost the youthful simplicity of a seven-year-old or the, or the desire to make change in the world as a 20-year-old. And I would say that's true about Chinuch, is that a lot of our educational engagements are very much in the moment. And um, they, you know, we can't look at education as reciprocal. Educators who look at their relationships with children at a reciprocal level are going to become corrupt. Uh, we are uni, un, we're uni, unilateral in the way that we approach children. And know that in the moment that we are offering our educational wisdom, whether it be through Torah or through general studies, it's creating for those students, whether they're aware of it or not, a frozen concept in time of knowledge that will inform them in the next level that they go to. And of course, knowledge is also not only just in its frozen equated time, uh, knowledge is also something which has it's its own sequence and that one aspect of knowledge becomes even more deeper and more literate than the next level. But I, I would look at education as trying to kind of create the different foundational blocks, um, children's experiences for thinking and believing and learning, whether they are four-year-olds or they're 14-year-olds. Wow. Yeah. Interesting answer. And a uh, really fascinating uh, interpretation there on Chai Sara by Ruff Cook. So what's the biggest challenge that you face as an educator? The biggest challenge is trying to make sure 
you know, I'll say it starting on the negative, okay, and then go to the positive. Years ago, uh, I met, remember I was heading up, before I got to Kushner and I was, I was in a different school, a parent came to me who had two boys who were in the high school already, and uh, I was new in my position, and he came to introduce himself, and he said, he's a very smart man, <clears throat> and he said, I have one request from you. I said, okay, what is it? Do no harm. If my two sons can graduate your school unharmed, obviously not in the, in the untoward way, but in any way, uh, then you'll consider yourself a successful principal. And I took very much to heart what he said, is that when we create educational structures and strictures, and we create expectations, and we, have, we deal with students in the sense of meeting them where they are, but also expecting them to, be, to go to a next level, we want them to internalize and process the messages, and we want them to own their own identities, we have to be very careful not to twist students into trying to be something they're not. And um, life in the, at least in the school world, has a lane. And the lane is as wide as you can make it. It's still a lane with, with a solid white line on either side. And when students need to fit into a lane, and for whatever reason in life, whether it's familial or whether it's developmental or whether it's emotional, and they go through different difficulties and challenges, we better know how to make sure that we can engage them, that can help them and support them while keeping them in the lane. And that's something which I think is a real challenge. So you're obviously a very um, experienced and, and professional Jewish educator. How do you stay motivated? Anything I say would say now sounds very self-aggrandizing, and I try to avoid speaking about myself. So if that's okay, we should probably just... I don't know, uh, not talk about that, but I can tell you that I have uh, been benefited from the great, unconditional, unending, unstilting, stinting love and support from my wife, who has been an incredible partner to me and has dealt with me difficult when even when uh, life has uh, deprived us of what would, some would call the normal life-work balance. Uh, I always feel very secured and rooted and stable, knowing that I have uh, the support and the un- unconditional acceptance of my wife. But uh, I think I'll stop there. Is, is your wife also a Jewish educator? She was. She's not. She was not. She's not now. She's some. She's mostly retired now. Okay. okay. Wow. Well, that's important. That's uh, good to have to re- recognize that you had that partner with you that 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 was a way that you could be the best educator that you could be like that answer. Um, what advice would you give to new educators who are just beginning their journey? Try as best as possible to be sensitive to the nuances of students. Listen a lot more than you talk and try not to speak about yourself and try to get to know your children by asking them questions about themselves. Uh, and um, Make sure that you pay attention to every single student in the classroom. There's no throwaway children. And if there is a student who is not engaging, you just don't assume that the child is, uh, is, is, is in, a, in a healthy, wonderful place and you're going to get that child will take in what you're teaching. Try to understand what the reason that there may be a disengagement from the child. Um, I would also uh, ask all the new young educators to understand that um, children are very impressionable. 
and uh, they don't like cynicism or sarcasm. They respond very well to people who care about them. And uh, it, it should educators who think that they can make jokes at the expense of children are doing a great deal of harm. And they should be very sensitive in how they speak to children. Educators should recognize that everything they say could potentially could build or could take away. And every engagement is from an adult who has power to a child who does not have the same power. So conversations need to be purposeful and deliberate, and they should make sure they avoid conversations that could create discomfort for children. Um, That's so important that you mention that because sometimes um, as educators, maybe we forget that and we tend to just, oh, we need to teach them this or that. And we maybe get so focused that we forget, you know, we really want to connect with our students and really be so careful with what we're saying just to kind of tack on to something you mentioned before we were reading recently the Jewish action and one of the challenges now is like how do you keep these young people how do we keep them involved so that they want to continue to be Jewish and what can we as educators do to continue to um, keep that pilot light lit so that they um will always have that in their pockets so they remember um, their Judaism and want to continue to connect with it. How do you think we could do a better job as educators to do that? Well, obviously it's a very vexing issue and one that creates a lot of uh, concern. I once heard a great line about the Titanic. The question was, how are Jews different from the Titanic? So the answer goes is that the Titanic was a ship that everyone thought would never sink, and it did. And Jews are a ship that everyone thinks we will sink, and we never do. Mm-hmm. So I, I think when addressing questions about continuity, we have to keep in mind that what we're looking at today may take on different forms and shapes and be manifest with different challenges, but it's no different than any of the conversations that we've had for hundreds of years. It's true that before the Enlightenment, Jews didn't really have much of a chance to leave the, uh, the, the inner sanctum of Judaism because no one would accept us. So there was certainly a degree more of being of isolated and, and siloed. And today the world is open to our children. So the threat of assimilation and of disinterest is much greater than it was, let's say, pre-Enlightenment. <clears throat> but I think we also have to remember that you know, as you read through Jewish history, this, these are not new questions um, that are asking ourselves. Now, that doesn't necessarily bring us succor or solace or comfort, um, but we should feel a little bit more at ease knowing that uh, you know, we've gone through a lot. Um, in getting to the specific question that you asked, uh, I think we have, to be, we have to find the balance between evolving to be re- relevant but not lose the traditional foundation of Judaism. Um, We have a lot to be proud of, even if we need to modernize and we need to uh, change or modify some of the existing practices. Um, The, the, you know, Rabbi Sachs has written in several places that we need to avoid creating Jewish identity around tragedy. Um, that was, it's, tragedy is not the purpose for Jewish identity and Jewish faith. Our Jewish identity and Jewish faith comes from the positivism of the value system 
and the, 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 the commitment of our communities and the eternity of the Jewish people as it's manifest through our observance of mitzvot. It's not an all or nothing game. And Rav Cook was a big supporter, a religious supporter of the secular Zionists because he saw within them the spark of Judaism as it was manifest through Zionism. And for them, that was their expression of really profound Judaism. And in fact, he criticized the yeshivish old world rabbinic community for shutting them out and not giving them a place at the table because by doing so, they they were shutting them out of Judaism and moving Judaism away from them. So we have to find ways to continuously evolve who we are educationally, religiously, communally, but at the same time, be very careful about the traditions and the mores and the principles that guide us. I had the privilege years ago of hearing Anton Scalia uh, talk to a group of students when we visited Washington. It was really one of the great moments as, as an adult to hear the great Supreme Court justice speak. And he said that people criticize the Supreme Court for moving too slowly and not being dynamic enough to face the current problems of any contemporary society. And he said what this slowness it does is it deliberates law and makes sure that we don't make mistakes. We move slowly and it's a great benefit. I would say the same thing about the way that we are practicing. Maybe people want more to evolve and more to change and be radical, but too much radicalism also under, un, to some degree undermines the foundations of the Jewish community. So um, my answer to your question is that, yeah, sure, I'm concerned. Uh, we need to consistently look what we're doing and see what kind of an impact it has. But I believe that the strength of our community and our messaging ultimately gets kids to stay related to Judaism, if not when they're in high school and college, but when they get settled down and get married and have children and they're looking to create a, a community that has values, I find that a lot of them find their way back. So uh, we want to ask how we can help students to build a strong Torah foundation. But, uh, you know, we're, we're particularly interested to hear, because um, you just mentioned, you know, there's a lot of times it's the next generation. Um, sometimes uh, students kind of come back, if you will. But uh, how important is it to build that strong foundation um, from an early age? Uh, you know, in your experience, have you seen that there's, you know, some things that can't be done later on in life? Or um, how can we help students to build a strong Torah foundation? I, I mean, it's critical. We, we all know how important early childhood education. Even you don't have to go, you don't have to go into the world of Jewish education. We can just we can look at the, the the history and the research on just what early childhood education means to the healthy development, the cognitive development, intellectual development of children, and study habits. Uh, so, of course, uh, because I think it's a, a given that what we're doing is we're starting Jewish education from the earliest ages and we're creating a, uh, a simplistic <clears throat> and a, um, a single dimensional view of Judaism so children could love their experience in their younger years. The challenge then becomes to help them take the simplistic views of Judaism as it was developmentally appropriate for them in the early educational years and begin to layer on nuance so they take that same passion that they had when they were younger and begin to develop through a more sophisticated lens of older children. That is a big challenge. You don't want to lose them when they begin to become aware of the fact that the world is a lot more complicated 
in the reality than it is as described in the Torah. The Torah is full of nuance and complications that could all be relevant. So yeah, Jewish education is a start of a young age, build a foundation, and then build the next generation of Jewish education on that foundation so that they could create meaning and identity at the same time. It seems like, um, especially for young kids, and maybe this for older kids too, that it's important for us to really show the beauty in Judaism and and the the fun and um, yes, you want to teach them the basics of what we do, but really have them develop that connection. Um, do you see that being as important also as they get older? I think that's actually, without being uh, too argumentative, I, I think it's not a healthy way to teach Judaism is to look to the beauty in the front. Because when kids are going to graduate high school and go off into college, I could I could promise you that their life that will lead as a secular college student will be a lot more beautiful in many ways and certainly a lot more fun. And if they look to Judaism to create that kind of beauty and fun for them, then it could it's a module that could be easily replaced with another module of beauty and fun. So um, I think, you know, getting back to what I said before, the reciprocity of a relationship with the Boreolum uh, kind of like what the Shia Leibowitz said about prayer, uh, there, Judaism has to come with an obligation, and it also has to come with responsibility. And I think one of the more important aspects of Jewish education is teaching responsibility. And responsibility, as one, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think he wrote a book on ethics and, and education, I'm trying to remember his name, uh, Moran, I think, M-O-R-A-N, M-O-R-A-N, Gabriel Moran, I think his name is the author. He writes that um, students need to be responsible to and for their, their, the world around them and their learning. We're, we're responsible to one another, which means that we're expected to meet certain standards, and we're responsible for one another to make sure that we embrace uh, the the humanity in its uh, as as responsible adults. Now that I think what Judaism has done quite brilliantly is it said that a mitzvah. I said this to kids at the beginning of the school year. If you ask anyone what a mitzvah means, gar- not guaranteed. But I would say the majority of people would say a mitzvah means a good deed. But the mitzvah is not a good deed. It it is a good deed. It could be one. But the word mitzvah means commandment. We're commanded to do and obligated to be. It's not by accident that the Jewish community is so philanthropic. It's not, it's not by chance that we're always looking to set up all self-help uh, or foundations in any community we live in. But those are the messages that we give to children at the youngest ages. And if you ask me what we should start with at the youngest ages, that's the message, that you are responsible and that you're not living a life of just complete um, unhinged freedom to kind of pursue any type of pleasure that is self-gratifying because we're responsible. Well, right? I mean, I really like that answer. And I think it's a challenge with the times that we're living in too. We're so used to everything is easy access. You know, you, we want fast internet. We want this, we want that. And I think it's important for us, like you said, to realize that we have a responsibility and some some things are not instant and we have to work for things too. And then that, that's when you really appreciate it also. Right. Yeah. There's uh, there's no, no word in Hebrew for fun, right? <laughs> Shashua. 
probably be the best way. <laughs> um, so what does successful Jewish education in the future look like? Well, I think I'm going to quote uh, the great profound philosopher Yogi Berra, uh, who said that um, <laughs> it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, so um, I, uh, I, I can't tell you that answer. I'm really, uh, you know, I, I guess as a school leader, I should have a horizontal view of what I think life should look like in five years. But if anything has taught me about this pandemic is that we need to scale down what our long view is because the moment is so valuable. So Interesting. I, I, I hope, I'm not, hope I'm not underselling myself and your listeners are going to shut me down because there's a guy who has no vision. <laughs> I don't know what the future looks like. I think everything is changing very quickly. Both, I think the society and culture in which we live is becoming very complicated and somewhat even toxic and becoming intolerant to one another. So I don't, it, it just, it's all just so in liquid state. I don't know. Right. What, what's, uh, what are some of your thoughts about what you've seen uh, just, just throughout with COVID? Um, you know, the masks, the, the Zoom classes the technology you know is there a do you have a preference have you seen that one is maybe more detrimental overall i think if anything i say in a public forum that can go out somewhere into the wide world of the internet (laughs) could be misinterpreted or could be twisted or could be misquoted but i would tell you that uh, children need to be in school and we need to be teaching them and for all of the years that I have heard that technology was going to replace school because of remote access, it certainly became very evident from right from the beginning that there was no chance that technology should ever replace teaching in-person engagement and relationships with teachers in schools. This has been, we need to have our children in school, period. Right. Well, how do you establish that connection, right? If you're strictly virtual i mean for as long as our history we've always had um the rebbe or you know the the mora or mora just teaching individual students and then working up to a bigger classroom and having that in-person connection it definitely seems like that's not going away uh no it's to the contrary i think we have to double down even more important than it ever was do you think there's an ideal kind of class size you know, or or is it better to strive towards kind of like a one-on-one relationship with the teacher? It depends on um, depends on the student and depends on the subject. You know, we've had students that uh, were very gifted um, and that they really needed to race in ways that were more of a mentor teaching relationship, and uh, we assigned. Kind of, kind of like brilliant scholars to teach them either in person or believe it or not uh, through remote. Uh, and uh, for those types of students, there was benefit. But even the brilliant scholars need to benefit from the cross conversations with other students and learning about other perspectives. So you take small groups and you exclude them from the opportunity to 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 discuss and dialogue with their peers around educational or social thinking then they lose out on their own ability to broaden their perspective. So it really would depend on the class and the student and the teacher. But I think for the most part, all students benefit from a critical mass in a classroom, which allows for divergent thinking and which allows for debate and discussion and teaching of, of not just tolerance, but appreciation for the views of others. 
All right. Well, um, Rabbi Eliezer Rubin, we thank you so much for being with us. You've given us a lot to think about. Um, thank you for the privilege. Good luck to you. I hope that you continue reaching people and finding ways to inspire all your listeners to become better practitioners and more thoughtful Jews. I mean, thank you. And, and yeah, um, good luck to you too. And, uh, you know, you should have lots of uh, blessings this year, um, you know, in the coming years for, uh, you know, all that you do as well for, for your students and for all of us. So and, uh, God willing, we'll see you back in Israel. <laughs> okay. See you then. In my dream house. <laughs> okay. Nice to meet you. Good night. Uh, be well. All the best. Thank <laughs> you.